you often need to be calling a decent amount of the time. I think most people defend against continuation bets way too infrequently. In general, with a lot of these flop C bets and stuff, I'm I'm one of the small ball kind of players. I'm betting one-fourth the pot, one-third the pot. Let's talk first about why you shouldn't be the pre-flop caller. I love to underrepresent my hand, especially against those who are addicted to C-betting or who get twitchy checking twice, so they, they never check twice. Hey everybody, Steve Fredland here, welcoming you once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. We are officially sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, and we've also partnered with Next Level Poker, which is our official tour, the Poker is Fun Tour, and PokerCoaching.com. A couple of quick announcements before we get into things. All In For Africa 7 is this coming Saturday, October 28th at 10.30 a.m. at Running Aces, and the final table is going to be broadcast live by Next Level Poker. Also, we are having our Hawaiian Dream Winner Take Most tournament the following Thursday, November 2nd, also at Running Aces, and that's a 6 p.m. start. And during this week's weekly tournaments, during a lot of them, we're going to be giving away seats to um, to those events, to All in for Africa 7 and the Hawaiian Dream Winner Take Most tournament. Um, so the winner will uh, have that seat added as well. And we got a number of contests uh, happening on Twitter uh, if you follow at All In For Africa. So uh, details available for both of those at runaces.com. Hoping you can make it. Hoping uh, we have a huge turnout and a huge impact. I am recording this uh, right after playing the Running Aces Hollow Scream tournament. It's a $280 buy-in tournament. And I was hoping to talk about my $35,000 score, but that is not the case. Uh, but I did have a good result, and a lot of that I give credit to the things that I'm learning on this podcast I ended up playing five of the six different day ones, and I was able to actually get three bags. And because of the buybacks, two of them were each worth $1,200. And then the other one, uh, I got to bring in a big stack, uh, 299,000 chips I had uh, into day two. That was the fifth biggest uh, chip stack out of the 103 returning people and about 670 entries. Uh, I wasn't able to get as deep as I wanted, but I felt pretty good about uh, running to 26th place before I ran my pocket jacks into pocket aces uh, for my last 18 big blinds uh, and a cash of about 810 bucks. Uh, it was a good result, but I'm still kind of waiting for that real breakthrough event. But I was able to play with and learn from a ton of Minnesota's top players. Uh, I played with a lot of them the entire day on Sunday. Uh, people like Loki, Abood, uh, Eric Wright, Saad Ghanem. Alex Moo, who eventually won the thing, Jason Sell, Mike Iverson, Luke Mernon, and several other uh, top players. So it was a great weekend of learning and fun and excellent poker. Uh, anyway, last week we looked at post-flop decisions when we had been the pre-flop raiser. And this week we're going to look at some of those decisions we make post-flop when we were the caller pre-flop. And so, like every week, these are huge questions. Uh, we can't fully explore them. We just don't have enough time, and they're really detailed. But we continue to look for some of those principles and those key things that we should be considering uh, to help make sure that we're putting emphasis in the right place and giving different factors the right weight as we make those decisions. I want to thank Mike Johnson, who really initiated this particular discussion. So after a quick shout-out to our official sponsor, you're going to hear from Minnesota Hall of Famer Mike Schneider, author and coach and just great player, Jonathan Little, 
and World Series of Poker bracelet winner Chris Fox Wallace. And then uh, I'll come back and share some of my thoughts on this as well. So thanks for joining us and enjoy this episode. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota. Featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit RunAces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. He's won a million dollars! Hi, this is Mike Schneider of the Poker is Fun Tour, urlpiftpoker.com, or on Twitter at piftpoker. See, uh, today we're talking about uh, some post-flop stuff as a caller pre-flop, and um, begin with when we are out of position and first to act. Uh, let me just say, as somebody coming coming for at this from a primarily limit hold'em background, this is one of the topics that I really struggle with in my no-limit game as well as my limit game, but is in general in limit poker, you check to the guy last to act, and then they bet, and then you start playing poker after that, so... I'll just uh, throw a few few thoughts at you from my perspective here. And one of the things I feel like when people do make these random like donk bet leadouts into players, it seems like quite often people have polarized ranges when they do so. So it's either they like flop to set and they're hoping to get raised and trying to re-raise, or they have a hand like queen jack on king eight two and they're just like taking a stab at it, hoping to take it down with nothing and. So I'd say it's kind of important if you are going to incorporate these uh, bets into uh, aggressors or just bets into players that uh, you have a little more balanced range. So maybe you throw in a bet or two with like ace eight on a king eight two flop or just something to make it so that it isn't you're trying to get all in or you got nothing and just to make it keep your range balanced and uh, be a little bit more difficult to play against in that kind of way. And then also you can uh, very easily just kind of, as you're playing at a table, observe and figure out who the passive predictive types are, who the who the reckless, aggressive maniacs are, and then you uh, cater your leadouts into people based on that. So like a little more passive predictive guy, you might be more likely to bet that king eight, or that bet that ace eight on the king eight two flop because if they raise you, they have you smoke. They are they are messing around where. Whereas against a hyper-aggressive player, they might raise you and you fold the best hand, so you're probably way better off just checking and letting them do their thing and calling a bet and seeing what happens on the turn. So then uh, changing gears a little bit, so now let's uh, say if we are in position and our opponent checks to us, uh, a lot of things I'm considering are board texture, uh, how aggressive I've seen my opponent's play other hands like if it's a draw heavy flop uh i'll be uh trying to incorporate if i bet here uh is there a high percent chance they're going to check raise me and if so how often do they have draws and do i want to give them that kind of action or do we want to keep the pot smaller and simply check behind and hope that they'll uh bluff into us on the turn and we can uh call them down and catch them bluffing or a lot of well, that kind of opponent-dependent stuff, or if we have z- literally zero history, like we just got sat down at a new table, it can can be about establishing our own table image, too. Like, uh, 
you you can play with it either way. You check back, and uh, then you can use that to your advantage in future hands. Or if you do fire a bet out and just see bet a few times, you can, uh, assuming your pair opponents are paying attention, you can uh, then uh, mix in some checks to mess with, mess with their minds or continue to bet and. They, especially if you do happen to hit the deck hard, they they might not they might stop believing you, and then you're gonna get paid off. And those kind of scenarios where if I have been a continuation betting on the flop and turn and stuff a lot, and not showing my cards, and then you a lot of times there, like if I do eventually like third or fourth time if I have it. Now it's changing to talking about bet sizing a little bit. Uh, I that's when I might start start firing out a few larger bets, so getting closer to pot size or even over pot size or things like that, just based on if it, if I'm starting to stretch the boundaries of what they might think is believable, then if we make a hand, we, we want them to, when they aren't believing we're telling the truth, we want them to pay us off, so more likely to have some larger bets then. But in general, with a lot of these flop C bets and stuff, I'm... I'm one of those small ball kind of players. I'm betting one-fourth the pot, one-third the pot, a lot of those smaller numbers, both both because they, they are quite effective, and I, I feel like people people fold to them too much, too, or even then when you'd get called, you've invested less money to, uh, to find out that they have something, more or less, but they're still folding, in my opinion, more often than they should be to these, like, one-third or one-fourth size pot bets, and... It's a way to conserve the chips for all those times you don't have it and you get called. Like, why put in more when you can put in less and find out find out that they like their hand? That's kind of where I'm at regarding all that. And then uh, lastly here, now question from Mike J about if he feels like he folds mo- middle and bottom pairs to post-flop C-bets quite often. Uh, and asking if he should be calling with those. Uh, Again, coming at this from a limit holding background, I'm generally calling with a lot of those pairs. I mean, tournament dependent. We're late in the tournament. There's, there's a different money and considerations in play. I might just fold them or I might go all in with them. But say like early and mid stages, I generally am calling with those pairs on the flop just because, I mean, opponent dependent. But a lot of guys, if they if they get called on the flop, they shut down on the turn and check and give up. And those are the kind of guys that we we just need to pay attention at the table when we're not in hands and see whether our opponents uh, appear to be the type that give up after one bullet or regularly fire the turn when check 2-2. Two, two. And the guys that are uh, habitual turn betters, a lot of them, like if you flop third pair, you might just check fold on the flop because you know there's a good chance you're not going to get to see the river for free. And don't really want to be putting in bets on two streets with third pair, but it uh, mainly comes down to the opponent types and trying to peg the guys that are going to give up and let you know that your second pair or third pair is quite likely to be good. And uh, they're for sure the type of players that you're going to want to call that flop bet with. But on the converse, if there's a complete total maniac at the table, like you're, you should be happy to check call a couple of streets with second pair because they're trying to give you chips, and you might they you might run into a real hand once in a while, but they uh, quite often aren't going to have it. And again, like a really hard to answer the question in a general sense, but 
But uh, yeah, I would say in general, if you are folding that often, uh, you probably should be calling with a few more second and third pairs. And uh depends too on if it's a draw heavy board type or one that isn't. Like the draw heavy board types, it's a little easier to get away from third pair. So say you got 765 flop and you uh, were in the big blind with king five. I mean, if it's an aggressive opponent, you could way easier to fold that there, both because uh, eight on the turn, uh, three on the turn, etc. Like all those cards, like you check, they bet again. It's going to be really hard to call second street because they might have it. Plus, if the turn's like a jack on the turn, they might bet again, thinking you peeled the drop, or the flop of the flush or the straight draw, and they're going to try to get you to fold your hand on the turn that way, whether they have it or not. So few uh things to consider as far as like way easier to peel second pair or third pair on a king eight four flop compared to a seven six five flop but with that uh this is mike schneider um you are or i'm on twitter at schneids poker s-c-h-n-e-i-d-s poker i'd love it if you uh gave me a follow and my uh poker is fun tour as well at on twitter at p-i-f-t poker don't have anything uh, scheduled yet for our next uh, set of tournaments, but I'm hoping to, within the next few months, get a few more things on the calendar. So if you could uh, stay tuned and check us out and hopefully come support us the next time we got some tournaments going on. With that, until next time, thanks. Fox here with Next Level Poker. And I think this is an interesting question, not as much because we're, uh, we need to talk about how to play pro- post-flop as the pre-flop caller, but let's talk first about why you shouldn't be the pre-flop caller. Um, I remember years and years ago talking to Taylor KB, who started CardRunners.com, and he was he was a $25.50 dollar um, no limit player online playing an ultimate bet at the time and he was considered one of the better no limit cash players and he said i don't know what it's like to play when you call post flop because i don't do it um he wants to play as the razor or re-razor pre-flop and i learned a lot from that and have have spent a lot of time playing that way uh, i certainly do call pre-flop sometimes but probably 10 or 20 or 30% as much as you do. And when I do, I have a specific reason for it and a specific set of plans depending on what happens in the hand. So if uh, I'm thinking, if okay, if this loose player bets and this pro calls because he knows the loose player is going to bet and then he'll check fold the turn if he doesn't have anything and he usually doesn't have anything and so the pro doesn't need to have anything, then I can flat here, and if that happens on the flop, I'm going to raise the flop and blow those guys out of here unless I have a real hand. And if I have a real hand, the first guy's going to bet, the second guy's going to call, and I'm going to call, and then on the turn, it's going to go check, bet, and then I can raise, and I can make a lot of money on my real hand. So if I have a specific setup, I can I can do that. But uh, you have to be sure that calling is the best play because it should be your third option. Your, it should be raise, fold, call as in order of the things that you think about. Is, does raising make sense here? If it doesn't, is folding the best play? 
If clearly neither of those is correct, then you can call. Uh, in tournaments, as well as in cash games, but it's it's way more common in tournaments to find this, need this advice. Um, we have the 5% rule, which is you never call off more than 5% of your stack preflop with a speculative hand. Just, just a hand you're hoping to hit something with. You can't call it off with ace five of diamonds for 10% of your stack. You just can't make enough money back when you hit. You don't hit often enough, and when you do hit, you don't get paid enough. You can, and if you start actually paying attention to that, most people will go, oh, that's a nice rule to know. And then they'll call off 8% of their stack, then the next turn they'll call, next hand they'll call off 7% of their stack, and they won't actually think about the rule and follow it. Spend a night making sure that every time you call a preflop raise, you know, you know exactly what percentage of your stack you're calling off. You'll find that almost all players make it make this mistake frequently. People screw this up, and they're they're going to call ten percent of their stack far too often. Most recreational players don't know what else to do with a pair of sixes, so somebody raises and they have sixes on the button, they're going to call off ten percent of their stack. Either ship it or fold. Calling is in fact never correct for ten percent of your stack, especially when it's you know. And, and remember, it's ten percent of the effective stack, so. If you have 100 big blinds, but your opponent only has 20, and he raises to two and a half big blinds, you can't call. You can three-bet him and call it off. If he has 12 big blinds, you can ship on him if you think there's any fold equity or you think his range is super, super wide. But you can't call if the effective stack, either either you or the other player, whoever's shorter, yeah, um, if it's going to be more than 5% of that number. So let's get on to actually answering the question. Um, playing post-flop, post-flop as the pre-flop caller means they have the initiative, they have a pretty good feel for your range. One of the reasons we don't like to call is because they have a better feel for your range than you have for theirs. My range to raise from middle position is quite wide and includes a lot of different kinds of hands. Your calling range from the cutoff doesn't include a lot of kinds of hands and isn't as big a range as you think. Because I know that you're not doing that with Ace-King, and I know you're not doing it with a pair of Queens or a pair of Jacks, and I know you're not doing it with Deuce-Nine offsuit. So you have what's what's a range with no head and no knees. Uh, it's all in the middle. It's all medium-strength hands. And they're all hands that can flop something. So I know that you're playing speculative hands. It might be a pair of nines. It might be a pair of fours. It might be queen jack suited. It might be five seven. But it's it's in that range, and so that what we call torso range is pretty easy to play against. Uh, if I flop a set with my kings that I raised with, I can bet into you and then check raise the turn because you're often going to call with your speculative hand and then let me check raise you on the turn. So when you know that you're playing against a player who can play, knowing you know someone who thinks about ranges, they're going to put you on speculative hands, pairs, small and medium pairs, and those suited connectors, suited one gap kind of hands and suited aces. So think about how often the flop hits the hand range that you have, not your actual hand, but the hand range that you have. What do they think you have? If the flop has two diamonds on it and you, in fact, flopped a set, raise the flop. They may think that you're raising with a, a, a flush draw and get it all in. 
If they fold, it's not that big a deal. But sometimes they're going to call you and you can check behind on the turn and get it all in on the river and stack somebody with your set because there was a coordinated board and you know that with the range that they raise when they're raising in the middle position, they almost never have a draw. You know, the, the, the frequency which someone has a diamond draw with when they're only playing ace-king, ace-queen, and nines or better is pretty low. They're usually going to have a pair instead. In which case, you're, you can slow play your set, whereas against an, some other ranges, you wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so think about what they think you have, and then don't flat on the flop. Just like we didn't want you to flat uh, pre-flop, don't flat bets on the flop so much. Raise or fold on the flop as well. Don't flat somebody's bet because you don't think they have anything. That's only a river play. If you don't think they have anything, raise them off it. So if the flop comes nine high and you have a pair of threes and they bet into you, don't call because your threes might be good. Raise because your threes might be good. Because if they're good now, they might not be good by the river. Raise it up and find out. And it's possible your threes are no good and a pair of sixes is still going to fold because they think you've lapped something. Learn your combinatorics if you want to get really good at this and learn how often somebody hits an ace with any given range. You know, how often if their range is ace-king and ace-queen and a pair of eights or better, how often do they hit an ace-four-three board? Did, how often do they have that ace? You'll find, a, you know, in this case it's probably 40% of the time or something. Um, and so you can often raise them off. And if you have a hand with any potential, you can raise, and unless they have a hand where they can three-bet you, they may freeze up. Even if they don't want to fold their pair of jacks on that board, they may freeze up and give you a chance to hit your hand. So uh, raise-fold then if you absolutely have to, and it's definitely the right play call. Also, don't uh, slow play so much. Almost everybody slow plays entirely too much. We slow play based on how polarized our opponent's hand range is against ours, not how strong our hand is. Uh, because you flopped a set is not a reason to slow play. Because you flopped a set against what you know is a pair of kings or aces might be, but are you sure you're going to make more money slow playing? We only have three streets to get the money in once we flop something, and it's hard to get the, all the money in if you don't get some money in on every street. So slow play less often... Be more aggressive with your raising or folding. Uh, know your opponents. I know that I'm giving kind of the same advice for a lot of these situations, but it's really true. Uh, thinking your way through the hand is much more important than trying to come up with a set of rules for how do I play post-flop as the pre-flop caller. You need to learn to think about all these things and what things to think about. So uh, I know it's not a formula and that's what everybody wants, but that's what works. Uh, looking forward to just uh, a few days away, the All In For Africa event at Running Aces will be broadcasting that event at twitch.tv slash nextlevelpoker, or you can get it on our website if you go to nextlevel.poker and click on live, the uh, little live broadcast feed will be there on the website as well. It'll look better in the Twitch app because the Twitch app will fill your whole phone screen and it's built for exactly that, but uh, if you don't want to install the Twitch app on your phone, you can... Watch it on our website. Thanks to Steve for running a kick-ass charity tournament 
I hope to see you all there. There will be extra bounties from us at Next Level Poker and some giveaways from some of our sponsors as well. Some stuff from Pocket Five, some stuff from DGenware. Uh, we'll have some Next Level Poker hats there. Um, a bunch of a bunch of other stuff. You never know what kinds of things are going to pop up at the All In for Africa events. I'll see you there in a couple of days. People are like, "Are you little? Because your name says you're little." I say, "No, I'm not little." Hello, this is Jonathan Little for PokerCoaching.com, and today we have a gigantic question that I've written entire books about. So um, don't expect for us to go too deep in this short time that we're allotted, but I will do my best. So when you are facing a preflop raiser and you call, and then the flop comes, assuming we're first to act, which implies that we call from the blinds, what is our decision-making process when it comes to leading or checking? In this situation... I am almost always checking with 100% of my range on all boards. And that's because it's very difficult to balance a leading range. Because in order to be balanced, you need to have some strong hands and you need to have some draws, typically whenever you're playing aggressively. Assuming you are trying to be balanced, which you want to do in general against most unknown people. So by leading with your strong made hands and your draws... What does that do to your checking range? Well, that takes away your strong made hands and your draws. And that means when you check, you have mostly marginal made hands and garbage. And you don't really want to limit your checking range right off the bat by checking and telling your opponent, okay, I have either something marginal that you can bluff me off of or garbage, which you can bluff me off of. So that's why I don't have a leading range. If you are going to have a leading range, you want to lead in situations where you should have a very big range advantage. And that's usually going to be when someone raises from earlier middle position and you call in the big blind and the flop comes like eight, seven, six with two clubs. That's a spot where it should be where the big blind could very easily have a range advantage and certainly has the polarization advantage, as we discussed in the previous podcast. Again, if you haven't listened to that, make sure you go back and do that. But um, whenever you have the polarization advantage and perhaps a range advantage, you can certainly consider leading because you should be the favorite, right? And there, whenever it comes 8-7-6 or 9-8-7, the preflop raiser from early position should have almost no nut hands, whereas the player in the big blind should have lots of two pairs, lots of straights, and lots of flush draws. So that's a great spot to lead, if you are going to lead. But even then, I still just check and look to check raise a lot, or when it goes check, check, bet the turn, and then bet the river. All right. Next, if we are in position and our opponent checks... Again, it depends entirely on the board. And also, it depends on your opponent here. Some people only check when they are giving up and against people who are playing that poorly. Because if you do check and you're only check folding every time, then you're really easy to play against, right? Against those people, you just bet everything and pick up the pot. If your opponents are going to check with a range of garbage, they're going to fold, but also some hands that they are basically never folding, which often happens against good players. Say they raise from middle position or early position and you call on the button and it comes ace, nine, seven, a lot of good players will check with hands like king-queen, or they'll check with hands like ace-three. And with the ace-three, they're checking and they're looking to call you down a ton. And they'll also check with pocket kings, where they're going to check call the flop, maybe check call the turn, and then check fold the river. So you don't really know if you can blindly barrel them. And against players like that, you have to be much more cautious with barreling, because if they figure out that you're just bluffing a lot, they're just going to start checking with all their aces, and that's going to put you in a terrible situation. So... Against good players, it's really tough to know what to do when they check, but I typically like to start just by betting the flop, the turn of the river, going for a triple barrel right off the bat against most people, because I think most people, when they check, they're usually giving up, or they have something marginal. And whenever you put in that last barrel, it usually needs to be pretty big, because you are trying to get your opponent to fold 
a reasonable ace, right? So that's typically what I do in that spot. But as you learn more about your opponents, you can go from there. Um, what are typical... Actually, assume you're in position and your opponent continuation bets into you. Now, you often need to be calling a decent amount of the time. I think most people defend against continuation bets way too infrequently. Um, for example, in the question, they mentioned that they're just folding middle and bottom pairs to continuation bets, and that is way too tight. Very often, when your opponent makes a, a small bet, like half pot, if they pick up the pot even 30% of the time or so, they're going to immediately profit. So that means that you have to defend, stick around, like 70% of the time. And if you're folding any pair, you are almost certainly folding way more than than 70% of the time, or thir- way more than, um, you know, they, they need you to fold 30%, and you're folding like... or 70% or more. So you're folding way too often. And you have to become comfortable with sticking around. Now, there are certainly opponents who you can fold way more often than you, you know, quote unquote, should against. If your opponent's only betting with the nut hands, well then yeah, just fold. But a lot of people will raise with a reasonably wide range and then continuation bet with a reasonably wide range. And that's going to lead to you giving them money way too often on the flop. So you have to become accustomed to sticking around. And when you do when you are facing a continuation bet, I do think you need to call a lot. You could also raise a lot. And when you do raise, the hands you want to raise with are typically your very strong made hands and your draws. Um, what a lot of amateurs do, often incorrectly, is they raise with stuff like middle pairs or top pairs, and then they just continue betting with it on the later streets. Now, it's fine to raise with those hands on the flop if you know you're going to. That, that's most of the money that's going to go into the pot because essentially you're protecting your hand and then getting a little bit of equity in a head. But if you raise, let's say, queen-jack on queen-7-3, and your opponent calls, and then they check you on the turn, this is no longer a spot where you want to be trying to put all of your money in. And that's what happens to a lot of amateurs. So um, realize the strength of your hand and what your raises do to your opponent's range. Um, So what are the typical bet sizes, where we bet and where we raise? It depends on the situation. As the board, as you can have more nut hands... And as your raising range contains more nut hands, you typically want to raise smaller. Like say the flop comes ace 9-9 nine, nine, and your opponent continuation bats and you have a 9 and you want to raise. That's a spot where you can very often raise tiny because you have almost no obvious bluffing hands on ace 9-9, nine, nine, right? Whereas if instead the board was 9-8-7 and you had jack 10 and you wanted to raise, that's a spot where you can raise big because you can be raising with stuff like ace 10 or um, a random 6, right? So as you have more draws in your range, you typically want to be betting bigger. Um, but yeah, the main main point I wanted to really say about this is that a lot of people fold a continuation bets way too often, which is why in my first book that came out, gosh, seven or eight years ago, I recommended continuation betting 100% of the time because people did not defend well enough. But as people do get better and they realize they have to call continuation bets or raise continuation bets a ton, like 70% of the time, a lot of the time, um, that means that you cannot continuation bet quite as often because your opponents are defending better. But if you do find someone who is folding stuff like a pair on the flop, well, that's a guy you're just going to continuation bet against 100% of the time and run them over. Um, if you want to have a lot of examples about how I approach this situation and many more, like we've talked about in the previous podcast, definitely check out pokercoaching.com. There you can sign up for a free one-week trial. You can try a bunch of quizzes, over 100, where I go through each and every street and explain to you exactly what I would do in each situation and why. And also we have interactive homework quizzes where we go through specific hands and break them down, not just on your hand. Like I don't say, how do you play jacks in this spot? I say, how do you play your whole range? And that leads to some really enlightening discussion for 
a lot of the students and myself sometimes because it's always great to go through these situations really in depth and work on your game. So check that out at pokercoaching.com. This has been Jonathan Little. Thanks for being here today. All right. Thanks, Jonathan and Mike and Fox. Appreciate that. Uh, let's quick hear from our sponsor again, and I'll be back and share some of my thoughts about this. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. So I recited Pi to 22,514 decimal places. It took me five hours and nine minutes. All right, so I've mentioned before that I'm, I'm far more comfortable in position post-flop, and so I'm much less inclined to just call pre-flop when I'm out of position. Uh, I'll be much more likely to either raise or fold, especially when I'm out of position. So when I am the pre-flop caller, it's generally almost when I'm in position. Uh, but of course, there are situations when that's not the case. Uh, defending my blinds, uh, real speculative hand, multi-way, uh, things like that. But um, I've learned uh, through the podcast, through other players, through experience, that I'm rarely going to call out of position with hands that have reverse implied odds. So hands like Ace-9, King-10, Queen-Jack, those sorts of hands where it's likely I'm either going to win a small pot or lose a big pot, uh, I'm typically going to raise or fold. So the exception might be defending my big blind to a near min raise with some of those hands. So when I am the pre-flop caller, I'm either out of position with hands that make post-flop decisions much easier, like pocket fours, pocket nines, jack ten suited, or I'm going to be in position. And when I'm in position as the pre-flop caller, I could have a vast range of hands. I could be slow playing a big hand, I could be underrepresenting its strength, uh, or I could have a speculative hand, or I could have any two cards just floating and looking for some opportunity to steal, or it could be anything in between. So if I'm the preflop caller out of position, I tend to play as small a pots as possible, at least on the flop and the turn. I, I very rarely lead out on the flop, uh, this idea of donk betting. Uh, to, when somebody else is the preflop raiser, and then the first person to act leads out, that's called a donk bet, and I very rarely do that. I would rather check and see what my opponent does which is going to help me assess his or her range. Uh, this also means that it's tough for my opponents to further understand my range. I will do this with a flop set and with an absolute miss. Uh, so in all situations, I tend to just check to the preflop aggressor. Now there are times that this backfires uh, when they just check back and I end up getting outdrawn, but, but times it also leads to large pots. But because of my lack of confidence playing post-flop out of position, the best thing this does for me is to help me control the size of the pot when I feel that I'm at a positional disadvantage, especially when I'm against some of those tough players that I was playing against uh, during the hollow scream. Now, I'm not afraid to put chips in if I feel like I have the best hand, but typically that will happen in the form of a check call or a check raise versus just leading out. I love to underrepresent my hand, especially against those who are addicted to c-betting or who get twitchy checking twice, so they, they never check twice. Now, in position, when I'm playing well, I tend to think of the value that I can get from a made hand in terms of how many streets of value it's worth and what streets I should try to get that value. For example, I call a middle position raise from late position with ace-jack suited and the flop comes jack-seven-three rainbow. 
I'm thinking about my opponent's range, the likelihood that I have the best hand, the vulnerability of my hand, and where I can get my value. If my opponent bets, what does that mean about their range? Uh, how much of their range am I ahead of? What would they be continuation betting? Are they 100% see better, or do they only see bet big hands like pocket jacks, pocket queens, and those sorts of things? If I have a worse hand, how can I best limit my losses? And if I have the best hand, how can I extract the most value? Oftentimes, I'm just going to call behind here because it underrepresents my hand. But sometimes I'm going to re-raise because only then will I be able to better understand my opponent's range, especially if there's someone who will C-bet all the time. One of the things that I've really learned over the past few weeks of the podcast is understanding this concept of range versus range when looking at board texture and considering my opponents. I noticed myself always looking at that when I was out of the hand during this last tournament. I would always be watching when somebody was a pre-flop raiser and then looking at the flop and was that a good flop for them to bet or to check. And, and I found myself watching that and watching the results and it really kind of locked that in for me. But Back to this topic, now I'm not afraid to call down with a medium strength hand when I think that my opponent would be continuing with a large chunk of their range, including a good uh, good sized chunk that I do beat. Um, I like to do this more when I still feel I have a chance at making the best hand, uh, but I will do it with less if I, if I feel like I have a read. Now as those of you who have played with me know, I'm not afraid to play a big pot if I feel like I have the equity to go for it. But my preference, especially lately, is to play a bit of pot control, to use deception to underrepresent my hand against an aggressive opponent, to balance my expected value with variance reduction, you know, things like that. I don't play cash, but I would think of I, I think of cash as always taking the best expected value decision because the utility of the amount gained to the amount lost is linear. So like a $10 increase is the same weight as a $10 decrease. But in tournament play, that relationship is usually non-linear. An increase of 10,000 chips is usually not as valuable as a decrease of 10,000 chips hurts. So this non-linearity motivates me to reduce variance unless I feel like my equity is significantly higher than my opponent. And when I feel like that's the case, I will put chips in the middle, I will be aggressive, and I, I will play a big pot. But generally, I like to keep the pots... Uh, a little bit uh, more controlled. Now, I think that there are two areas in my post-flop game that need the most attention that I'm going to continue to pursue. One is gaining more confidence playing post-flop out of position, and the other is my reduced post-flop aggression due to tournament utility considerations. Now, th these might not be shortcomings, but there are a couple areas uh, I see that appear different than some of the fantastic players that I've been able to play with and to talk to. Now, this is not directly related to our topic today, but another thing that I've learned, primarily playing with Loki this past weekend, who confirmed what I've heard from Mike Schneider and seen from others, is bet sizing. As we get down to the final few tables in a big tournament, that min-raise or just over a min-raise is, is to open is plenty. Say the blinds are 2,000, 4,000 with a 500 ante, a raise to 8,500 is just as effective as a raise to 10,000. Now... Part of me wonders, though, if that's only true for people like Loki and Schneids because of the respect that they have, or if it would be the same for me. I feel people are more likely to defend against me than they are against those guys, but that might not be true. Similarly, post-flop, let's say the $8,500, or I'm sorry, the 8500 bet gets called by the big blind, and it's heads up, so the pot is 24000 
Now, I've seen post-flop bets of 8,000 or 9,000 get through by people like Loki during this tournament, or at least something more like 10 or 11,000, rather than what I might uh, be prone to do, which is put in 15 to 18,000. Now, what a difference that makes, especially if we're called and we're trying to control the size of the pot. Say our opponent is going to fold or call regardless of our bet within some reason. Now, if they fold, I've either risked 9000 or 15000 for the same result. And if they call, the pot is either going to be 42000 or 54000 depending on if I bet 9000 or 15000 Now, I guess this is good if I have the nuts, but if I'm trying to control the size of the pot... This is a huge difference later in that hand as we get to uh, future betting, but also a huge difference in terms of the tournament. Anyway, that's just something that I was really watching carefully from the top players this weekend. So that's all I have uh, today. Um, As always, I'm open to your feedback on Facebook, Twitter, or email. Next week, we're going to have a little bit change of pace. We're going to look at physical appearance, things like wearing shades and hoodies and that sort of thing. And I'm going to start doing some specific hand situations and hand reviews after that. So feel free to write one up with as much detail as possible and email it to me at stevefredland at gmail.com. And as always, all feedback is is greatly appreciated. And if you listen to the podcast, let me know. If we're we're playing together, let me know. I always love to hear from folks that are listening and, and hear firsthand Uh, what you're enjoying or what you'd like to hear more of. So with that, uh, thanks so much. Have a good week.